It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. 14 episodes, uh, that's what this represents. Uh, the, the story of Alfred the Great, I think uh, for many of us, we'd have to admit we didn't know much about it. Now, there could be some exceptions uh, in the audience, but it's, uh, it's quite a grand uh, story. But uh, the reason I was originally attracted uh, to this as a platform for communicating truths of the kingdom uh, is because I felt like it matched, it was a parallel with so many things we're going through in our nation uh, today. The, uh, we don't have Vikings, but we have Viking ideology. We have a similar movement against us. But there are other things that really stood out to me, and that is the behavior of a Saxon king. There is something about the intimacy between a Saxon king and his men, known as thanes, his closest noblemen, the ones that uh, he's going to enter into a covenant with, that is deeply stirring to me, that, uh, that teaches me about the kingdom of heaven. And you know, we've been going through a, a part of the storyline which is going to center around an island of Athelney and a battle called Eddington, which is going to be Guthrum against uh, Alfred. And so you have this picture of good uh, in Alfred, and you have this picture of evil in Guthrum, and Guthrum is going to seem to have the upper hand for so much of the story. And then at a certain point, you're going to see like hang and, Haman hang on his own gallows. You're going to see a turn in the story. And I mean, it's pretty thrilling, actually, how the Battle of Eddington is going to shift, and then suddenly Guthrum is going to be at the mercy of Alfred. And I don't know how many of you had that awe and that shock effect in your soul when you see Alfred actually demonstrate mercy to Guthrum instead of judgment. And what an incredible picture. It's not just that he is going to let him go free. He is going to bring Guthrum into the kingdom of heaven, of all things. I mean, he is going to see Guthrum converted to be a Christian, to be baptized, he is going to clothe them in white and bring them into his mead hall. He is going to call him his son. And so Alfred is going to spiritually adopt Guthrum as his son. <laughs> it's one of the most fantastical stories in all of history. I mean, it truly is remarkable what is taking place here. And so what I wanted to do at this juncture is sort of have a, another uh, point of contact with the Mead Hall, because I gave a message, it was a few weeks ago, called the Fellowship of the King, and it just deeply stirs me. The entire idea of the shield wall, which is their basis for military uh, action, is based upon covenant oath, where you bond together in, an, in, a, in a loyal oath with the person next to you, and you recognize if they run from the shield wall, it doesn't it kills everyone around. I mean, you would lose your life if they turned and uh, betrayed the loyalty. You fight unto the death. You stand shoulder to shoulder, shield wall to shield, you know, shield to shield, overlapping. And that's the strength of the Saxon military system. And so when you take a, a little peek inside the Mead Hall, it's, I don't know, it stirs you. It, it just, it gives us a picture of something that for many of us, theologically, the idea of being seated in heavenly places with Christ, 
uh, abiding in Christ, being in His presence, is, is, is pleasant to us, but it doesn't have a tremendous amount of meaning because we are looking for overlaps, even in what we have experienced, that we could say it's like this. And for most of us, we haven't grown up in a culture of such intimate fellowship in the body of Christ that would cause us to understand what it truly is like in heaven. And that's why I think to, it's interesting to go back to the medieval times and to see something, it's like, boy, they, I think they're better at this than we are now. And you, know, you can't say that about a lot of things when you go back to the medieval times. You're like, boy, these guys need to grow up. These guys need to learn a few things. And this one, you're sort of like, I think we need to learn a few things. They have something that is very special. So this one is called the Ring Giver of Wessex. So there's a behavior that in the historic understanding of kings is just there. And it's fascinating. It's not just like the Judean line of kings. This is just like the understanding of kings. And so I'm going to show you a little evidence of that just in the book of Esther. King Asuherus, who none of us are really going to look at it as a mighty hero or a picture of the kingdom of heaven, even though he's going to make good decisions and he's going to kill Haman. He's going to hang Haman. I mean, so yay. However, I mean, he's not a, he's not a guy that's going to be the epitome of righteousness. Look at this, though. This is fascinating. When he takes Esther as his wife, he's going to uh, hold a feast. Then King Asuherus made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, for all of his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Now, that's a hard thing to translate, that, that final little phrase, according to the generosity of a king. But it's sort of like according to the pattern of as kings do. This is what kings do, is sort of the, the way of saying it. And so, but there's this generosity that is supposed to be a part of the way a king functions. And so if a king is happy, he shares that happiness. If a king is sad, and it's sort of like the nation shares his sadness. It's like this bond between a king and his people. It's just fascinating. Because we didn't grow up with kings. I mean, we're a very different form of government here in North America. And so as a result, it's sort of like we don't quite understand what this is referring to. Alfred's exile at Athelney. So when Guthrum comes into Wessex, surprises him during the Christmas holiday season, and one of Alfred's most loyal thanes, one of his closest friends, is going to betray him, uh, that is going to actually cause Alfred to have to flee into hiding to even spare his life and to try and spare his country. And so when he's in exile, he's cut off from his treasure store. He's cut off from his men and cut off from his ability to function as a king. So what's interesting is he loses his meat hall, he loses his treasure store, and so much of what makes Alfred great, it's like he, he's lost. He's unable to be that gift giver, that ring giver that he, is, he had been. Dr. Merkel says, King Alfred was once again the ring giver of Wessex, sitting enthroned in the meat hall with his faithful thanes surrounding him. So this is what's happening as a result of the Battle of Eddington, as a result of the tremendous victory. We see Alfred being restored unto something very specific, and that is that he is once again the ring giver of Wessex, which is just sort of a fascinating statement. The treasure store is brought back to him, and he's in a position to give good gifts. And you know, so what we see with Jesus in the gospel is a, is a parallel to this. You see him cut off, him buried, 
him resurrected, just sort of like the Battle of Eddington, and then you're going to see him enthroned on high with gifts to give. So that's a little foreshadow of where I'm going. The Mead Hall. See, the Mead Hall is, to most of us, doesn't sound like a very pleasant place. Sounds like a raucous sort of place that we would avoid. You know, as conservative Christians, we're not going to be in the, the Mead Hall. And yet the Mead Hall is sort of like the, the intimate fellowship with the king. This is where the king is. In fact, when you think of the throne of an old uh, Saxon medieval king, it's in the Mead Hall. This is actually where his throne is, but his throne isn't a throne. It is a mead bench. Uh, it doesn't quite fit our, our mental picture. So I'm going to call this the seat of the king. So Dr. Merkel says it this way, the Anglo-Saxon king sat enthroned, not on a gaudy gold contraption that signaled the distance between his subjects and him, but on the mead bench, pushed up to a long table, surrounded on all sides by his faithful warriors, the men who stood next to him in the shield wall throughout all his campaigns, his thanes. So the thanes. Now I've brought up a, you know, a, a little... Uh, screen like this multiple times throughout this series. This is one of those words that is spelled very awkwardly. Oftentimes in modern uh, English spelling, it's going to be T-H-A-N-E-S, and that would make a little more sense to us, but this, this spelling is sort of awkward for us. The things, it looks like thegans, but it's the king's trusted ones, those closest to him that share in his kingdom's strength and preserve it from all that would attempt to steal that strength. So there is a strength to the kingdom. It, there is a war strength, there is a financial strength, and these thanes, the most trusted ones of the king, share in that. They are given that strength. But why are they given that strength? It is entrusted to them so that they would leverage that strength of the kingdom to preserve the kingdom and to expand the kingdom. And so what, we're, what I'm doing is I'm hinting at a parallel here, because everything I'm saying really, I mean, who really cares about 878 AD in Wessex if it doesn't impact us today? That's the only reason I would bring this up, is we are, as the church of Jesus Christ, the thane in the story. We are the ones that are brought into the mead hall to sit on the bench with our king and to share in that intimate fellowship. And he has strength in his kingdom that he is going to divvy out and he is going to give unto his thanes and make them strong. Why? So that they could spend that strength to preserve something. So that they could stand on behalf of his purposes. It's not so that they can just get wealthy over here and they can live their fat, happy lives. It's so that they could preserve Wessex. Wessex is under siege, just to remind all of us. The Vikings, just because they just kicked out uh, the Vikings does not mean the Vikings aren't coming back. The Vikings, the moment Guthrum leaves, or Ethelstan, his new name, leaves, you know what, there's another band of Vikings that is going to arrive on the shorelines of Britannia with the intention of taking all of Alfred's wealth. Immediately. In other words, this doesn't go away. You see the conversion of Guthrum. It's this amazing story. The next thing you know, more Vikings are coming. And if Guthrum's not going to lead them, they'll have a new king to lead them. And so as a result, you see the intentionality of evil is not just uh, you know, persuaded to all go away because of one great victory. This is something that is a constant wave crashing upon the shore. So the thanes, they're the ones that share in the shield wall of their king. 
They're the ones that sit at the king's table in the meat hall. They're the ones that wear the rings of the king. They're the ones that share in the sufferings of their king. And they're the ones that share in the victories of their king. See, those things that share in the sufferings share in the victories. There are some things that betrayed Alfred in his sufferings that sided with Guthrum because it looked like Guthrum was going to win. And they sided with Guthrum, and they didn't share in the sufferings of their king, and so as a result, guess what? They don't, they're not sharing in the victory of their king. You might, that was a bad day for all of them when, uh, when the Battle of Eddington when Alfred won. And they are going to be charged for treason, high treason in their own country, for turning their oath breakers. It's the highest level of violation in their culture was to break an oath with their king and with their people. And so this is something that we understand as well. We are the ones that share in the shield wall. We are the ones that are fighting a battle alongside of our king. We are the ones that sit in the intimate place in the mead hall with our king. We are the ones that wear the ring. We're the ones in covenant with him. It's a circle. It's a binding circle. It never ends. It is a binding covenant. And we have entered into that with our king. We're the ones that share in the sufferings of our king. If he's at Athelney, if he's in exile, we're in exile. We're going to be where he is. And if he's in the midst of persecution, if he's in the midst of uh, difficulty and shame, we will stand with him in the midst of it. Just like David's mighty men, what were they? They were living in a cave with David. And when David was was in his sufferings, they were in his sufferings. And when he came into his kingdom, guess what? They came into his kingdom. And the same is true for us. We share in the sufferings, but we also share in the victory and the triumph of our king. So throughout history, there's good kings and bad kings. And a good king, a king of grace, a king that recognizes he's been given power not to just absorb it in himself, but to share it. He's been given wealth not to just keep it for himself, but to share it. He has been given something so that he can make others strong. That's always been the understanding of a good king. And so we could understand that as a king of grace because this is the way our God is wired. Our God is wired as a king of grace. He has all that is needed for life. He has all that is needed for godliness. But he is going to give that to us. He is going to share of his wealth with us to make us strong in his kingdom. In his reign, he is going to bring us into his strength. That is a king of grace. In this story, or in ancient Anglo-Saxon culture, this is the ring giver. This is the idea of what a ring giver is. So you have land, share that land with your thanes. You have wealth, share that wealth with your thanes. You have happiness, share that happiness with your thanes. You have victory and spoil, share that victory and spoil with your thanes. You have power, share that power with your thanes. You have need, share that need with your thanes. You have enemies, share those enemies with your thanes. You have a battle, share that battle with your thanes. The king's table in the mead hall. Dr. Merkel says it this way. This table was piled high with fruits and vegetables from the farms of Wessex and laden with the flesh of roasted boar, venison, and beef. An enormous horn was passed around the table. The horn was gilded, crusted with gems, and overflowing with mead the sweet intoxicating honey wine of the Anglo-Saxon warriors. An enormous fire in the center of the spacious room warmed the raucous crowd late into the evening. Like I said, this is a little awkward for some of us that are on the conservative side. It's like, I don't know that my mom would let me in there. (laughs) The mead hall. 
And yet there's something about this, even though we don't quite know how to appropriate every dimension of this, there is something beautiful about what is taking place in this mead hall. The singing shope in the mead hall. So Dr. Merkel describes it this way. Throughout the evening, the band of men occasionally would grow silent when the thrumming of the lyre began and the poet bard, the shope, began his singing. The song of the shope hovered somewhere between a haunting melody and rhythmic chant with its steady meter strummed out on the lyre. The words of the shope brought back to life the legends of old at the same time that they immortalized the names of the men sitting in the hall. They told of the glories of the glory of battles fought bravely, whether won or lost. They spoke of the nobility of loyal thanes who stood resolutely by their lord no matter the cost. They spoke of the treachery of men who had eaten at the lord's table, taken his gifts, but then become unmanned at the sight of the enemy's shield wall and filled with cowardice, turned their backs on their lord and ran from battle. They listed the names of the heroes and the cowards. It's interesting because did you even hear how Dr. Merkel is going to describe the table of the king? He's going to call it the Lord's table. In other words, they sit at the Lord's table and there is a covenant between them. It's just like, wow, that sounds familiar. And you begin to recognize that there is a king who has come from a higher place than Alfred. He's a king of kings that came to this earth and set up a table and shared a meal with his thanes and entered into a covenant. That's like, that's like amazing. Yeah, I, I've seen this before. The ring giver in the mead hall. Dr. Merkel says it this way. When the songs were finished, the king would give out gifts to his thanes. Generously, the gift giver would open up his treasure hoard and pour out his wealth to his loyal men. He gave gracious gifts of land with estates to noblemen. He gave farms and the profit that came with them. He gave horses, sacks of gold and silver coins, shields, helmets, swords, axes, necklaces, bracelets, and rings. This last category, the category of rings, came to epitomize the gifts of a gracious king. All Anglo-Saxon lords became known as ring givers. In return for these generous gifts, the men of the mead hall would pledge their complete devotion back to the ring giver. In the king, if the king ever found himself in need of an army to face down an enemy, he would find that his gift giving had, been, had not been in vain. His loyal thanes would rise up and stand unflinching in the shield wall to live or die with their ring giver. The shared bench, the seat of the king's closest. Technically, where we want to sit is we want to sit on the same bench with our king. What a privilege. I mean, even amongst the Jews, there was the right and the left side of uh, the host of a, of, a, of a gathering, like of, in this case of Jesus. And so I don't remember which side was which. One side would have been the, the side of friendship and one side would have been the side of honor. And so from what we understand, Judas sat on one side and John on the other uh, at uh, the Lord's table uh, at that last supper. And that's just amazing to think of either Judas being in, this, in the place of friendship or in the place of honor, <laughs> either one. It's, it shows a, a very deep connectedness uh, that he would even be given that spot. But the shared bench, the seat of the king's closest. Now let's look at Ephesians 2 in light of the Mead Hall illustration. Because when we think of our king high and lifted up, we think of a throne. We don't think of a Mead bench. We think of one of those gold thrones, right? So the intimacy level is he is there, we are way down here. 
which is not bad. That is somewhat therapeutic for our soul to recognize how small we are in light of his grandeur. Okay, So I don't see anything wrong with the mental picture that we oftentimes bring in, but what you sense the Spirit of God also wants to bring you into is a little Anglo-Saxon understanding. It's like, no, right here. And he pats the bench next to him. We're like, well, that's like where you sit. I know, I've, I've cleared a spot just for you. I would like you to come and sit with me on the mead bench. But Lord, that's, that's a little uh, too high of an honor for someone like me. And that's a good Anglo-Saxon thing to weave in, is to be brought into the mead hall. To be invited in in the first place is like the honor of honors. Like he wants me to come to the mead hall with him. But then to be given the bench that he sits on. That's his throne, actually, if you want to look at it. He is going to share the bench. That doesn't mean that you are the king. It just means that you share in the presence of the king, in the, in the decision-making of the king. You're like participating in this. So Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we have what could be described as the ultimate mead hall here, the heavenly mead hall. And we have a table, we have, you know, like a bench. And we have a treasure trove where he has gifts that he wants to lavish on those that sit with him. And that's all sort of wrapped up in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. And so I'm just going to take Ephesians 2, 6 through 7, and I'm going to give sort of like a medieval adaptation. Okay, It's not a high-level shift to the Scripture. It's just sort of like to embody it a little in this time period. The king has raised us up together and made us sit together on his bench in his heavenly mead hall in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of us, when we hear the the term in the ages to come, that means that he has all of these uh, riches that he wants to share with us, but that's in the ages to come. Or you could look at it, the ages to come are right now onward. In other words, from now all the way through ages to come, he has riches that he wants to bountifully give to us. You see, he's inviting us into the place where he keeps his treasure store and where his thanes sit, and he says, sit down here. Now, the way that we do that is in Christ by faith, because Christ is the one that actually is worthy to enter in. That is our access. But we still, in a very personal sense, have been given the ability to sit on his bench with him. I mean, it's, it's so fantastical, almost to the level of ludicrous and ridiculous, that we, like Guthrum, have stood against our king, have done evil in the sight of our king, and yet he, in and through his mercy, in and through his shed blood, is washing us, forgetting it, and bringing us into the closest place of even kinship, and calling us sons and daughters. Dr. Merkel says this, years later, 
When Alfred had the leisure to write, he described feasting in the mead hall and the warm fellowship between the ring giver and his thanes, the deep bond of comitatus, like deep bond of brotherhood, as the closest approximation he could make to life in heaven. This was life in the court of a king as it should be. Whenever something went wrong in Anglo-Saxon society, it was inevitably revealed as a failure to honor the most basic obligations pledged in the ring giver's mead hall. We could say the same thing. If anything's going to go wrong in our life, it's because we forget where we sit. It's because we forget the bond and the covenant relationship we have with our king, and we wander away from that reality. We stop rehearsing the precious gospel to our soul, and we begin to believe the lie of the enemy. Inviting Guthrum into the mead hall. See, even to stick that up on the screen seems like such a violation. If you understand the, the sacredness of this mead hall in the Anglo-Saxon culture, and then to think about who Guthrum is. Now, I really built up the evil of Guthrum, by the way. Did you guys notice that? That was very purposeful, by the way. And I wasn't exaggerating, but I emphasized it a lot so that you would not miss the turn of the tide. When, when, when Alfred gives mercy to Guthrum, it should shock your soul. It is the opposite of what humans would do, but it's what God would do. And that's why it's so profound that, that Alfred would behave in this way as a king, and he would not have vengeance against this man, but would in actuality do the polar opposite of what we would normally do, and even what a king would normally do. But to actually pursue his soul unto salvation and then to adopt him as his own son is so preposterous that all of us stand in awe. And to us, it's beautiful. To us, it's remarkable. To us, it's, it's lovely. And we want to have the same thing stirring inside of us. But inviting Guthrum into the meat hall is merely the gospel on display in the year 878. I mean, that is, it is profound. So let's enter Alfred's meat hall and see a shadow of the heavenly hall of sacred fellowship. So I'm building this all towards a thought at the end, just in case you're wondering where I'm going with this. I don't want to totally give it away, even though I've hinted at it way too many times in the process. So Dr. Merkel says, at Wedmore, Alfred treated his godson, that's uh, Ethelstan, who is now his godson, uh, who is Guthrum with a new name, along with Guthrum's 30 Danish companions to 12 days of Anglo-Saxon feasting. The Viking guests, once the mortal enemies of the Wessex throne, now sat in Alfred's raucous mead hall, white-robed, banqueting on roasted boar and venison, draining horns of mead and listening to the Saxon shope, thrumming on his lyre and singing poems of the glory of long-dead warriors, mingled with lyrics praising the Most High God who had created the wonder-filled world. And all of us feel a little strange to have some Vikings, and we could call them ex-Vikings. It's sort of hard to know. Right? Isn't that the way we feel about ourselves too? It's like I'm a sinner. Am I an ex-sinner or am I a current sinner? <laughs> Why does this work? Many of us have had that exact question. It's like, do I call myself a sinner still or am I a saint now? And in a sense, what you're going to see is Alfred sort of answering that question for us. It's like, this is no longer Guthrum. This is Ethelstan. You have a new name. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're no longer what you were. It does not mean he doesn't have the propensity to be what he was, but he is no longer what he was. He is a new man in Christ. 
And so Alfred is literally going to treat him that way. He's going to refer to him that way. He is not going to use an old name. It's still hard for me. I don't know what to call him. Do I call him Ethelstan in hopes that you all know what I mean by that? You know, I feel like I have to reference Guthrum. So you're like, oh, okay, yeah, wait, I know who you're talking about. The same transition goes on in our life where we don't feel like we belong there. We feel a little like an ex-Viking hanging out in the midst of his meat hole, sitting on his bench, and then when he gets out the, the treasure trove and he starts to give treasures to his thanes, the last thing in our mind is that we deserve something. What could we possibly deserve? No, no, don't, don't give it to me. I, I'm an ex-Viking. I have no business taking from the treasures of Wessex. Ironically, you know what Guthrum was after when he invaded uh, Wessex? He was after the treasures of Wessex. Everything in that box was what he was after, but he was going after it the wrong way. He was going after it from self's vantage point. And now after he humbles himself and gives his life over to Christ, suddenly the treasure trove opens and Alfred desire, even desiring to do it, gives gifts to Guthrum. Dr. Merkel says, each of these 12 days of feasting was filled with festivities and entertainment, hunting, horse races, foot races, archery, wrestling, and all the sports that delighted the Saxons most. The nights were filled with feasting and the music of the shope. Then well into the feasting each night, Alfred would open his treasure hoard and begin to bestow on his guests mountains of splendid gifts. His largesse, which is his kingly uh, generosity, flowed unrestrained by any resentment of the previous years of hostility between himself and his guests. Rather than vengeance, Alfred offered forgiveness, a forgiveness made clear through the great Saxon virtue of gift-giving. Pattern-welded swords with their serpentine-edged blades, magnificent helms crested with fierce boars, gilded and jeweled, finely crafted brooches and pendants, all these and more were handed over to the Viking guests." And you're saying, well, if you hand it to your thanes, okay, I'm okay with that. You know, I don't know if any of you get a little uncomfortable when you see someone with a largesse, with a extreme generosity sort of giving all their stuff away, especially those of you that have, you know, taken care of your resources very wisely, you know, and you, you're, you, know, you have your 10% that you give over here, but you make sure it's not 11%, it's 10%. You don't want to overgive lest you rob from you know, your need, you know, that which would meet your need base. And so when you see Alfred just like taking expensive things out and handing them, doesn't it make you a little uncomfortable? Like, whoa, we should measure the value of that first. I mean, what are you exactly you're giving away there? There's something about the generosity in this picture, which again is startling. It is beyond what we think is right and appropriate. And that's it's actually a good understanding of how the kingdom of heaven works. What he is giving us is so beyond what is appropriate. First of all, we don't deserve anything. First of all, we don't deserve to be in the meat hall. First of all, we deserve to be judged and penalized at some extreme level, like publicly beheaded or hanged or something for our rebellion, for our stance against the king of Wessex, for what we have done in his land. And yet here we are invited in as a son, or if you're a lady in here, as a daughter, into this place of close fellowship. But most important of all, says Dr. Merkel, King Alfred gave his guests rings, the gift that most conveyed the relationship that Alfred had established with Guthrum. 
King Alfred had once again, was once again the ring giver of Wessex, sitting enthroned in the meat hall with his faithful thanes surrounding him, eating his meat, drinking his mead, taking his gifts, and pledging their allegiance to him. And here Guthrum sat, now a Christian named Ethelstan, receiving Alfred's gifts and pledging faithfulness to the king of Wessex. Entering our king's mead hall. It's sort of a strange thing to think of our king having a mead hall. Would he have a mead hall? Is that what it would be called? And sharing a meal with him. You know that Jesus sort of set up a mead hall uh, right before he died? He sort of, you know, had a little table set up and had some uh, mead. I guess it wasn't mead. Some wine uh, there and had some bread. It didn't have the roasted boar as far as I understand, but ironically, he was the roasted boar, if you want to say it that way. In other words, the meal was him, but he had symbols of it there. You see, what he is going to do is he's going to open up his treasure box, and he's going to give everything to his thanks. I mean, it's a remarkable scene. Matthew 26, 26 through 28, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It's not land, titles, gilded swords, horses, sacks of gold and silver coins, shields, helmets, axes, necklaces, and bracelets. It's far greater. See, most of us in here might actually, if we had the choice between Alfred's treasure hoard and his largesse and Jesus' largesse, actually make a mistake and go with Alfred's. It's like, could I have some of those pendants and brooches? And what was that other thing? Oh, a helmet of gold? uh, Could I have that and some land? Oh, a bag of silver? Okay, I want that. As opposed to recognizing that what Jesus, our king, is giving us is so far beyond It is the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. It's not just the wealth of a little small nation known as Wessex in 878. This is something so far beyond. And Jesus is symbolizing as he opens the treasure and he gives of the most precious things in all of the universe. It's like, this is my body. This is my blood given for you. What an incredible reality. He is giving us himself. The greatest treasure. It's like, I would like you to have me. I mean, uh, okay, this is beyond what Alfred is. When we study Alfred, we're moved. And we're like, wow, look at that intimacy. But this is greater. What we are entering into, that is merely a shadow. That is merely a type. It is not the fullness of what we have in the kingdom of heaven. Receiving gifts from our king, experiencing the largesse of the king of all kings. Our king is generous with a capital G. The fact that he has received all of his due, all of his reward, he is deserving. None of us are. He is. But then he takes what is his and he opens up that treasure and he invites us in to that throne room of grace. I always like to call it the vaults. And if, if you've ever seen, hmm, I don't remember which one it is, it's one of the Fellowship of the Ring uh, ones where they walk in that underground Mines of Moria area, 
and it's just massive. Like the way they did the CGI on that, it's just this massive uh, area, underground uh, domain. And that's the way I like to say, okay, picture that. Now picture it stalked from floor to ceiling with the treasures of heaven. And God says, this is yours. It's full of love. It's full of joy. It's full of peace. It's full of kindness. It's full of faithfulness. It's full of gentleness. It's full of self-control. It's full of everything that you need for life and godliness. And he says, you have unlimited access to it. This is the life of your king, and you at any point in time can partake of it as much as you desire without any hand slap. There is no restraint in the kingdom of heaven to the gifts of God. You know, we are so used to having a hand slap on our life because we're reaching after the wrong things. We're like, can I have a little of that selfish uh, desire there? And we feel a little hand slap. We're like, why do I always get convicted over going after things? You're going after the wrong things. God gave you a grip, but not to reach for things of self, but to reach for things of the Holy Spirit. And when you do, there's no hand slap. We're just not used to that. We reach in the direction of the kingdom of heaven, and God's like, keep reaching. We're like, are you sure? <laughs> I mean, I'm about to grab like a whole gob of love here. Am I allowed to do that? Uh, you're taking not as much as you could. You could take two armfuls of love. You're just taking a little fist grab. It's like, come on, you need to grow up, Eric. Take more. There is more to be had as much as you can carry. And then as you grow up in the kingdom of heaven, you can carry more. You see, God desires to give of his largesse. His kingdom treasure store is available to us. Very specifically, God is going to show us in and through the New Testament that like an Anglo-Saxon king, he is going to open up his treasuries and give and divvy up the wealth of his kingdom to his thanes. Ephesians 4, 7 through 8, and then 11 through 13. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the way that we receive it isn't in a gold pendant or in a gold helmet or in a gilded sword. We receive it in the form of grace, which is why it's a little tricky for us. We're like, I, didn't, I don't feel like I received anything. Boy, if I was a thane back under Alfred the Great, I could have gotten some gold out of this deal. Maybe some land, maybe a horse. Instead, I get what? I get grace? And as a result, when we think that way, we're diminishing the true value of what we're getting because it is actually greater than what anything Alfred could give. And so to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so we start with the same premise that Wessex is dealing with, a king whose kingdom is under siege and whose nation is weak and vulnerable. So now let's parallel that with the kingdom of heaven. You see, we are young in the faith, and we are immature. We are not the full picture of what God desires this nation. We're not Wessex. We're the kingdom of heaven. 
We're the church of Jesus Christ, but he wants to grow us up unto a full maturity. So he needs to give us what we need. And so he is going to, out of his treasure store, entrust to his thanes his strength and his power. Why? So that they can build the nation strong. So that they can edify one another. That means to build up. You see, we are given strength not to spend on ourselves. That's the difference between the way we typically think, which is I want gold so that I can be rich personally, as opposed to God gives me his grace so that I can make others wealthy. I can make others strong. We are his thanes. We are the ones entrusted with his strength to make Wessex strong. That's why we're being given this. And the same is true here. God is going to give each one of us grace. Our job is to function in it and to share it with each other. If you are given the ability to teach, what should you do with that? You should teach. You should cultivate that gift. Now, some of you, what if your personality isn't inclined towards that? Well, I guarantee you there's probably quite a few personalities in the people of Wessex that didn't want to get in a shield wall and die. Wouldn't that be an accurate statement? I think there's a lot of us in our personality that might not go into battle, that might not stand in certain situations. That It's uncomfortable to stand for your king and your king's prerogative actually puts you in a place of danger. You have been given something so that the kingdom could be built up, but you need to exercise that something. Romans 12, 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So if you received land, let's say at his table, he gives you a deed to a property, which is one of the things that the king would pull out of his treasury, and he would give you this farming land, and then you just let it grow weeds, would you be utilizing the grace that he gave you? You see, if you're given farmland, why were you given it? So that you could grow crops to strengthen the nation. So as a result, if you lay, let your farmland be uh, just sit idle and it's not used and tilled and cultivated, planted and harvested, what exactly have you done with what he's given you? And so what we see here is this statement in Romans 12, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Not all of us are going to get that same plot of land. You might get a horse. You might get a land. You might get a sword. There are different things that are given out. But as the king knows, he knows who he is giving his gifts to. Our king especially knows. He knows what you are designed for. He knows what you are supposed to do with your life. And so he is going to bequeath to you gifts according to your calling. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. Why? For the profit of all. And that's the difference of the way most of us think about receiving treasure from a king. You see, we think of getting treasures so that we can be fat and happy and rich. It's like, I like that. But that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. You have entered into a different kingdom. You have transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. And the kingdom of the dear son is all outward in its focus. The king himself, with all his treasuries, does not have his treasures so that he can just be rich. He's so that he can make you rich. 
Why are you given the riches of the king? So that you can make others rich. You see, your job is to take the riches that he gives you and to share them the same way he shared them with you. You open up your treasure box and you give generously. Just like there is a way that is appropriate for a king to give of what he receives, there is a way for a Christian, for a thane, to give the riches that he receives. And you even see that in the, in the parables, where that one servant of the master is forgiven, and then he goes and he doesn't forgive. The king's wrath has awakened towards that servant. Because as we've received, so now we give. And if we've received riches, if we've received strength, if we've received power, what do we give to those around us? We give as our king gave to us. He has given us gifts. What do we do with them? We, give, we share them with others. So the Spirit of God is gifting you things in your life. Now what's funny is a lot of times we don't recognize that this, the king has given us something. I'm not exactly sure if we fall asleep at the bead table. I mean, it's like two in the morning and he whips out his gifts and we're like sleeping and he gives us something and we leave the next day and leave it on the table. I mean, I'm not exactly sure why so many of us miss the gifts that the king has given to us. But even Eric, okay, I'm going to acknowledge it uh, right now. Even Eric, for a whole season of my life, had no clue about what gift God gave me. I know natural gifts, like from a young age, I could have said, oh, well, naturally speaking, God has gifted me this way. And that's, that's important. Those natural gifts need to be given back to the king. That's the first thing you do with a natural gift is give it back to your king. However, there's spiritual gifts that take this natural man and cause it to do things that I couldn't otherwise do. In other words, they're over and above natural. And so I remember taking a season of my life and saying, God, what what is my gift that you've given me? And I could say gifts, because each of us has, it's sort of like you might have a sack of silver that he gives you, but yours has you know, about a third the amount of silver as someone else does. You're like, wait a minute, how come they got so much silver? Well, you also got you know, this gilded sword over here. Oh, and you also got this horse. You see, that's the way it is for many of us in the kingdom of heaven. And for me, I remember God clarifying to me, it was a, it was a very interesting process that he walked me through, where I began to realize what my, this spiritual gift was that he gave to me, what this grace was that he imparted to me, and it was faith. He had given me an, an extra measure, like a big bag of gold coins of faith. You know, I just presume that everyone has it, right? No, but it's a unique thing that he gave to me, and if you hang around me, you'll notice it. I believe the word of God. I believe God's going to do that. No, we're, we're, we're totally fine. God's ha got that totally under control, and everyone else is panicking around me. It's like, no, that, God's in control. And I have to recognize that's inordinate, but I didn't recognize that. And so that was a process Leslie and I began to walk through. One thing that I could say Leslie has is discernment. Leslie discerns very quickly. I have faith. That doesn't mean I don't have discernment. It just means those are things that we have begun to recognize. So I want to cultivate that. I want to grow in that. That is something that is a gift to the body. So as a result, at Ellerslie, I am going to give of my faith to you to inspire you to believe. That's how it works. So look at this in 1 Timothy 4.14 and 2 Timothy 1.6. This is Paul speaking to Timothy twice on the same topic. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. 
And then here we are in 2 Timothy. I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul twice is going to exhort Timothy to stir something up, to not take lightly the fact that he was given something spiritually. It's like, remember that sword you have? Yep, get it out of mothballs and start swinging it. Remember God gave that to you? Remember the day he handed that to you? Yes, yes, I do. What are you doing with it, Timothy? Are you swinging it? You see, for each one of us, there is a need for us to do the same. Our personal kingly gift, or I'm going to say gifts, because if you were to look at it, it's like we all get silver, but some people get more silver than others. We all get a sword, but some people get a broad sword, some get a rapier type of sword. It's like, wait, what, what mine's, why is mine like all thin? We all sort of have a different role that we play in this battle, in this revelation of the kingdom of heaven. And we fight utilizing our strengths with each other, like back to back, shoulder to shoulder. And so we know, it's like whoever has the broadsword, it's like, uh, yeah, where are they right now? We got a big Viking coming in. We really need the broadsword. And so as a result, you'll notice in every organization, even in our organization at Ellerslie, there's strengths that we all have. And, you know, we all have weaknesses. We don't usually focus on what the weaknesses are. We just appreciate the strengths in those around us. But we all know each other's weaknesses. And so, and as a result, the, the more mature we get, the more clear we are that I'm not the one that's built for that. You are. And so we learn when to decrease and when to allow someone else to stand in that gap and to do their role. And there are situations where it's like, that's an obvious Sandy issue. This is a Dan time. Dan, could you help us with this? I mean, there are, there are very clear things. We know when Nathan needs to step in. There are certain things that Nathan does all the time. We don't even talk about it. We're just like, we just know Nathan's going to do that. And it doesn't even come up like, who's going to do that? It's just like, we know Nathan's going to do it. And there's other things that everyone knows. That's an Eric thing. Eric will do that. It's Eric's responsibility to do that. Yeah, Eric is on that. And so as a result, we understand we're like a micro body in how we function. A hand needs to understand its limitations. There are certain things that a foot is built for that a hand isn't. There are certain things that a nose is built for that a hand isn't. And if a hand tries to function as a nose, it doesn't function as well. And you could try and use your imagination of how that could work. But if a nose try and tries to function as a hand, it's not going to function as well. It's learning your role, your gift of how you serve the whole. You have been given something to serve Wessex, to serve your Alfred. You have been given, to, given it not so that you could just build your little castle over there and start building up your Scrooge McDuck pile of gold. You've been given this treasure, this strength, so that you can serve and to give to those around you. So here's the question. How have, you, how have we handled these precious entrustments? Have we rejected them? You know, when you start talking about spiritual gifts, it makes some of us in here have the eebie-jeebies. It's like, oh boy, that's like Holy Spirit stuff. It just is, okay? You don't need to make it weird. Just because some people have made it weird does not mean that the treasure that you've been given is weird. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the conveyance vehicle of how this comes to you. He's the one that is, in a sense, going to take from Christ's treasure box, which was given him by the Father, and he's going to bring it across the mead table to you and hand it to you. But you can leave it on the mead table. You can reject it. You can just say, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with that. 
And so I'm just going to let you know that is one of the options <laughs> that we could do, yes. Not a very wise thing if you're given land to reject it. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Have we accepted them but failed to utilize them? Sort of like, oh, thank you. But then we do nothing with it. Have we responded as recipients of sacred how, have we responded as recipients of sacred gifts ought to respond? Have we tilled the land he entrusted us? Have we invested the talents of gold he bestowed upon us? Have we swung the gilded swords that he placed within our grasp? So I'm giving this to you as a point to stir you towards a certain meditation. First of all, some of you say, I don't even know that I have anything. If you're in Christ, you're at the table. If you're at the table, I guarantee you, your king is probably right, right now going, hey, you see that? It's yours. This is something that is guaranteed in the kingdom of heaven. This is not a bonus piece where some people get a gift at the table and some don't. All of us are given a gift. As a leader, I need to know that. It's not just a few in here that have gifts. All of you have them, which means my job is to, in a sense, like an orchestra leader, draw out the instrument sounds so that we can hear something more full. Your job is to play your instrument. 2 Timothy 1.6, stir up the gift of God which is in you. So let's look at this word stir up, and this is how we're going to finish. Stir up. This is the commission that Paul is going to give to Timothy, so I'm going to give it to you. Stir up the gift of God that is within you. Anadzoporeo. What a word. So this is a very unique Greek word that involves a lot of unique ideas. So Pyreo, have you ever heard of a pyre? Uh, it's fire, basically, would be uh, the concept of it. Uh, that zoe in the middle comes from the concept of a beast or an animal. So it's like you put those two words together and you're like, what are we dealing with here? That's why it's, it's an interesting word to deal with. It's a verb. This is what you're supposed to do with the gifts that you have. Spur on the horse that is beneath you, O horseman. That's probably the best way of doing it. It's like you have these spurs, and what do you need to do? Hiya! I don't think hiya is what you say. <laughs> what does a horse guy say? Ah! What do they say? I can't think of what. <laughs> oh, giddy up, giddy up! And then, then you spur. I can't spur with two legs at the same time when I'm standing here. Uh, and yet, it's an aggressive agreement with what you have. You've been given a horse, and that horse needs to run right now. What do you need to do? You need to move it forward. You need to stir it up. You need to awaken. I don't want to say awaken the beast. That just sounds terrible, right? But awaken the horse. If it's a stallion, that just sounds better, right? There's strength that you've been given, and you have the position to stir it, to arouse it. So here's another way of looking at it. Stir the ashes of the fire, blow upon them, throw on fresh kindling, and get this thing roaring again. You've been given something, but if you don't tend to a fire, it goes out, which is why you need to freshly blow upon it. You need to stir it up. You need to put fresh kindling on it saying, Lord, I want to be useful in your kingdom. I do not want to just wait for everyone else to do it. I want to do what you have given me assignment to do. So stir it up. Stir this dimension of your life up. 
Your king has given you life. Your king has given you strength. Your king has given you truth. Your king has given you love. What do you do with that? You share it with the world around you. You give to the body of Christ first and foremost. It's actually one of the first proving grounds is you are given the spiritual gifts so that you can actually give it to the body of Christ around you. But the chief purpose of the body of Christ is to give it to a dying world around them. And so as a result, it's both and. It's not just to each other, it's also to a lost and dying world. It's to the Guthrums out there. They're in desperate need of seeing the love, the forgiveness, the mercy of God. We have been given something, let's give it. Father, I ask that you would stir up or show us how to stir up these gifts within us. Lord, thank you for your largesse. Thank you for your amazing generosity. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of our King and that we have been invited to the Lord's table to partake of his feast, of his very life. Lord, may you get the glory that is due your name, and may the world behold your generosity, your love, your care, your kindness, your goodness. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.